Hello, listeners. Welcome to Big Cloud's machine learning and data science podcast. I'm Kit, one of Big Cloud's co-founders. And for those of you that don't know, Big Cloud is a global recruiting firm. We hire data science and machine learning talent for exciting tech companies in Europe, Southeast Asia, and North America. In this podcast, you can expect to hear leading minds in data science and AI talking about their field and discussing topics exciting and accessible to all. Hello, listeners. I'm excited to welcome longtime friend uh, onto the pod, Jose Casada, who's founder and CEO of an amazing company in Berlin, Data Science Retreats. Hello, Jose. Hey, good. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, today, I thought we could talk about the Data Science Retreats, and I'll ask you to explain a bit about the organization and what you do. Um, and then we'll have a more general chat about data science hiring in Europe and America um, mm-hmm. and, and take it from there. Um, so, Jose, could you tell us about your background and why you set up the data science retreat? Sure. So first, uh, thank you Kit, for inviting me. I'm excited to, to be here. I think this is a very good conversation to have, how things are different in North America and in Europe. And you have a very good position to, to speak about this because you are on both sides, right? Uh, right, so let me tell you more about data science retreat, right? So I have a, a strong tendency to to want to become better somehow as a programmer, as a person, as a uh, you know te- technology person, and also to help others become better. So um, I did that through something called Hacker Retreat back in the day, like six years ago. And it became very popular. It uh, got into Hacker News and so on. And the idea was very simple. The idea was simply that it would be free and people would come from all over the world to be in the same room to help each other improve in their technical skills. So basically doing pair programming, uh, trying new languages, trying new libraries. And this was pretty good. It ran for two batches in Berlin. I basically bootstrapped the entire thing, so it cost me money to make it free. And I wanted to be in a room surrounded by people who wanted to be better. So that was my my interest in doing this. So randomly, one person that I still don't know who he is sent me an email saying, hey, this it looks like your mentors there are all machine learning. So why don't you do the same thing, but you make it for data science, and you make it so that there are classes and you can actually learn machine learning because it's quite difficult and I don't think people will just do it with the current format. And then you will have to have teachers, which we didn't have with Hacker Retreat. It was totally self-directed. And then you you will have a, a completely different situation. And I thought, oh, this is, this is a very nice idea. So I just did that. So sometimes you just have to listen to the random stranger that sends you an email from the internet, right? So... And this is how Data Science Retreat started. That was 2014, long time ago. Fantastic. Just so, for clarity, Jose, Data Science Retreat is a, uh, a course where uh, people are looking to move into data science, can enroll, and, and they're put through an immersive, intensive training program in Berlin. Is that correct? Correct. So um, it's a three months, very intense training. We don't want to call it a bootcamp. It has the same format, the same duration as a bootcamp, but it's far more advanced. So I guess the, the the naming now is that a retreat is something that is for people who already know what they're doing, 
and a boot camp is more conservative in who they take. They can take anybody with basically no programming skill and that works. But for us, we need people who already program and who know a little bit of machine learning. So that's the difference between a retreat and a bootcamp. So just to explain for the benefit of the listeners, Jose, if I was a prospective applicant to data science retreats and I um, made an application to you, what happens then? Uh, can you walk us through the timeline of the program? Sure. So um, you, you press the apply now button, then you get into a form that asks you very few things. Then you immediately get a calendar slot with a human, with me sometimes, and sometimes with some of the other directors. And then you get interviewed in 30 minutes. We ask you questions about basic Python, actually really basic, and basic machine learning. You don't need to be Andrew Eng to, to pass, obviously. You need to know the answer to very basic questions, like what is overfitting, things like that, right? So once you pass, then we uh, pass you over to the person dealing with contracts and onboarding, and then you will get um, documents that you have to review and sign, and then you will be onboarded and, and signed up. So you will have to pay and then appear in Berlin by the time we start. And the good news is that nowadays you don't even have to pay in advance or at all, like uh, not while doing the course, because we have something called an income share agreement, which lets you take the course without any upfront payment and pay only after you find the job. So just for clarity again, Jose, so the ISA allows students to take the data science retreat uh, with no upfront cost. Um, uh, how do they pay it back and, and how does it work longer term? Correct. So this is not a loan, which is actually a very interesting construct. In a loan, you will go to a bank, say, and you will have to pay no matter what. So you will have to start paying whatever the contract says, and if you don't have a job or if you are sick or you have to take care of an elder parent, they don't care. You have to pay the same amount, right? Uh, ISA is different. It offers the person who takes it more flexibility in how they pay it and also uh, some downside protection, right? So the idea is that uh, the company offering the ISA invests in the person taking the ISA. So their interests are aligned. So we know that you're going to get a job and a high, highly paid one. So we are happy to, to invest in you. So the way it works is that uh, you don't pay anything until you get a job and you don't pay anything if you get a job, but it's not a highly paid one. There's a threshold, I think it's 21,000. I actually don't remember the number, but okay. So if you have to work at McDonald's, let's say that doesn't count. So we you, we don't pay, we don't ask you to pay back, right? Um, <clears throat> and then if you are looking for a job and you haven't found one, you are not paying. And if you get sick or you want to study or you somehow want to pause your life and you don't want to work, that's fine. You don't pay during those times. Now, when you pay, you pay a percentage of your salary. That means it's not a fixed amount. If you get a big salary, then you pay it back faster. And if, if it's a small salary, then you pay it longer. That is also different from a normal loan. So it's very similar to, I think, what uh, the UK listeners would um, know as a student loan. You, you, you're given money um, once you graduate and land a full-time position. The, the loan is paid back uh, through a percentage of your salary on, on a monthly basis. 
Right. I don't know about the UK at all. So it may very well be that this exists already in the in the UK. So uh, the ISA contract that we offer is valid for anybody in the in the European Union. Okay. Fantastic. Um, sounds like a great initiative, Jose. How's the uptake been um, for people going down the ISA route with you so far? Yeah. So this is something very interesting that kind of could start a conversation about how North America and Europe differ, right? So in North America. Virtually everybody wants to take the ISA. I'm talking about Canada in particular, but I suspect this is true for all of North America. And in Europe, very few people take it. I don't know the exact percentage, but maybe between 5 and 10%. And this could be because we are in Germany, and Germany as a culture is very averse to, to debt, to credit, right? And the interesting thing is that ISAs are not a credit, they are basically very different from a credit. It's kind of an investment, it's a kind of equity investment instead of debt, in, um, debt as a bank will consider debt, right? Also, interestingly, it was popularized in Germany. And most of the people who took the ISA so far are from Germany. And the company that backs the ISA is a German company. And this is very interesting. It's not an evil bank in any way. It's not a fintech backed by ABCs that want to get a hundred times their investment. It's actually a student association that wanted to help other students to, to, to get into university or stay in university, even if they have financial trouble. And this uh, association was so successful. That, that was a nonprofit and so on. So they are spinning out as uh, as a business, also a non-profit, but uh, it's not uh, focused on the one university where it originated. So now as an independent business, they can offer it to anybody. And they have been very successful. They are called Shansen EG, and they had an article on The Economist uh, talking about them. Um, so it sounds like a no-brainer then for uh, prospective students. They uh, enroll in the DSR. They don't have to pay anything up front. Um, they're almost guaranteed a high-paying data science job at the end. Yeah, I don't, I don't like the word guarantee because it depends on so many things that I don't control, right? So if you go back to a place where there are no jobs in data science, like you are from, I don't know, Malta, and you want to go back there, good luck getting a data scientist job, right? And um, also, I think it's kind of immoral to to tell people that they have a guaranteed job. So Okay, but that does provide a nice bridge to the hiring day, Jose, because I know at the end of uh, the three months in Berlin, uh, a collective of exciting uh, companies come in and, and your students present. Uh, is that correct? That's right. So um, most of what we do at DSR, I mean, just to give you more background of how this works internally. So you get 270 hours, maybe now more, maybe something like 300 of tuition from people who are practitioners and they only teach the one thing that they know very well. So there is one person comes to teach the thing that he loves and does every day at work for two days. Then he leaves and the next person comes, does the same thing for another two days. Then the another person comes. And after that, over, say, 270 hours, then there is no way around. You're going to get much better. Now, the interesting thing is that for me, the most important part is the portfolio project, which is what happens after those days of tuition. Then we ask you to create something original solving a real problem that somebody has. And that is your letter to the world that communicates that you can do machine learning. And 
our hope is that your project is going to be so convincing that it's going to end any interview immediately as you put it on top of the table. So um, for examples on portfolio projects that people have done, um, some of them have social impact and those are the ones that I like the most. Uh, one of them is a self-driving toy car that goes around and picks up cigarette butts. And cigarette butts, I don't know if you knew, but they are very bad for the environment. They're, they can poison 40 liters of water, just one single cigarette butt. Um, and they're very hard to pick up. So this toy car will go around. So imagine a swarm of those cars that will go through a park, for example, and just pick up cigarette butts. So yeah, that would be the idea, right? And the team that made it, this was made by a team of three people. They actually had conversations with the um, authorities here, the, the Berlin company that cleans the parks and the, the streets. So they had three conversations. They, they were interested. Has it moved forward into the real world? Of, of the, of the... It, 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 they, they were talking about deploying it, right? The, the thing is that there are very many open questions like, okay, if you put cars like this out there, somebody's going to steal them, right? Just for, for parts. So getting to social impact is really, really hard. Just let me tell you that I've learned that the last two years or so. There was a project that um, created a microscope that detects malaria without human intervention using a mobile phone and a cheap um, construction that costs $60. So if this will be put in production, it will help many people in locations of the world where there is malaria. And there was uh, another example is a project that helped wheelchair users to find the smoothest path between two points so they could go. So the, the sidewalks in Berlin are very wide, but kind of very old fashioned and they're made of rocks. And sometimes they are very bumpy. So uh, the person who came up with this idea, Masanori, he was from Japan and he was a volunteer pushing wheelchair users. And as soon as he arrived to Berlin, he looked at the sidewalks and said, wow, this is going to be very unpleasant for a, side, uh, for a wheelchair user. So this is the great thing about having diversity in teams that you find problems that nobody else will have paid attention to. And at DSR, there's so much diversity. People come from all over the world. So he built this system and he collected data by going around Berlin with a wheelchair and two mobile phones attached to the arms pointing at the ground and registering the vibrations with the accelerometer and um, the, the video of how the sidewalk looks like. And then with that gold standard, he went to Google Street View and did a segmentation algorithm to parse out sidewalks and remove trees and cars and bicycles and things like that. And then he could then estimate the bumpiness of any sidewalk anywhere in the city. So with that data, they could overlay it on top of a normal map. Like I think there's something called open street maps that is similar to Google maps, but open and then do a recommendation for a path for a wheelchair user. They didn't get that far. So that's the, the thing about portfolio projects that it takes a lot of effort after the prototype stage is done to get to social impact. You need something more serious. You need investment. You need real programmers spending months, not weeks on this. Sorry, Jose, are you seeing a, a general trend in um, Berlin or in your intakes of people being motivated 
by building machine learning or AI products for social good? That's a very good question. So I think there is a trend. Um, still, there is a limit to what people can do in the three months. So I think their main concern, rightfully so, is to find a job. So the fact that we ask them to do portfolio projects to solve a real problem and that may have social impact, that's a nice to have. But the real problem that they are looking to solve is finding a job. And this is why also we don't make a big deal. We don't write about this on the website. We don't talk about social impact. If you look at the projects, you get the feeling like, okay, these guys are really going for solving real problems. But there is no mention on the website also because it's so hard to do that... I don't want to say that I'm doing social impact projects because until these things go into production, there is no social impact. We are doing prototypes that could have social impact, but that's a very long shot from actually having social impact. And I want to be respectful to the people who actually dedicate their lives to try to reach social impact. I cannot do that. I cannot afford this. I don't think our participants can either. So we have to solve a very immediate problem, which is... How do you get the skills to get a data scientist job in Europe? Hopefully not a junior one, but more, mostly mid-career, even senior. So there are two or three people who are C-level. We can talk about them later when, you, uh, when we discuss the companies where they go to. And three startups um, were created from portfolio projects as well from DSR. Um, just last week, one of our uh, participants from Batch 8, I think, got a, a job as a CTO of a company. So people are going to really strong positions, definitely not junior. So there have been three startups that have spun out of the data science retreat projects. And um, also, what type of companies uh, are you seeing um, graduates move into? Jose, can you give us a few examples? Right. So the companies that they started, one was in uh, virtual reality advertisement. Another one was in gaming. Another one was in health, doing uh, cancer detection and so on. And they were, were named the, the second best startup in Germany. I, I got that from LinkedIn. Um, so that that's for the companies that started and the, the companies they go to, it's mostly startups, although some big companies also hire from us like Bayer and uh, Amazon. Uh, but I mean, now in Berlin, Berlin is full of startups, right? It's very vibrant. So many companies that they will go to, you may not have heard of because they are so early stage that they haven't made much noise. Um, but there are also bigger startups hiring from them. For example, SoundCloud. I think one of their chief of product is from DSR. Salando has a bunch of them. Get Your Guide, which is an unicorn right now, surprisingly. So they got money from SoftBank. They are a unicorn right now. Credit Tech. Credit Tech, their chief data scientist right now is from DSR, from Batch 1. So there's um, no question that people moving through the DSR are landing um, pretty exciting jobs in, in industry, Jose. Yeah, I mean, it may take them, like the, the person getting to the chief data science position, it took him, I don't know, two or three years to get there. So it's not like they land immediately on the chief data scientist position, obviously. Um, but yeah, they, they are getting... 
I would say maybe 10% or so by now, they'll have chief or BP level positions. I mean, we have the most advanced curriculum in Europe for sure and probably in the world. So it's not a surprise that they go um, to that level. I was going to ask you about the curriculum, Jose. Obviously, it's uh, uh, the most important part of, of the DSR. Um, how did you curate it and, and how does it differ to some of the kind of online boot camps in the US that perhaps aren't as prestigious or successful um, as the DSR? Right, right. So um, normally what people do to, to create curriculum is to adapt it to the ecosystem that they are immersed in. So they go talk to the companies and then they teach exactly what the companies want. So they try to teach to the test, right? And we try not to do that. We try to see the trends and teach you what is the most effective, the most uh, spectacular uses of machine learning today. And the truth is that companies don't need that because they are always a little bit behind, sometimes a lot behind the bleeding edge. But we still decided to to give you the tools of what we consider is the best possible use of machine learning. And then you can always downgrade and you can study more for interviews if you want, and we will definitely help you. Um, so we teach things like reinforcement learning, uh, computer vision, NLP. NLP is becoming popular, computer vision a little bit too. But for example, reinforcement learning is virtually unheard of in companies. There might be some companies using it, but they are deception right on the rule, even in the valley. And we still teach it because I think it gives you an advantage over other candidates that cannot talk about that on interviews. And some people do portfolio projects on reinforcement learning. So that's a big bet. We don't want to teach to the test. We want to teach whatever we think is best, basically. And the people creating the curriculum they they know what they're doing, they're practitioners. We go to to the top conference in the world and we pay attention to what's happening there. And basically, we try to implement it as soon as possible. And we also uh, iterate a lot on the curriculum. I think we throw away about 20% of the curriculum every three months, every batch, and add new staff. Although we have to stop doing this because we are already kind of... Uh, way too um, sophisticated and we, we are now kind of going back to basics and in the the next uh, curriculum design we are kind of spending one month on having very strong basics uh, instead of uh, going too soon into the advanced stuff. We can afford to do that because during the interview we filter for the basics, right? So we don't need to teach the basics on the first week because everybody has it because they passed the interview. And the good news yeah. is that if you get people who already can program, then they are thinking about their portfolio project from day one and they they iterate a lot on ideas. This takes a lot of effort right now. There are many ideas that are already done. And by then, uh, by the time that they have to start programming, they have already gotten a lot done. So you could not get the, the quality that we get with portfolio projects if we had to start with people at ground level in programming skill. So people that are getting into the data science retreat certainly have a core um, knowledge of programming and, and can you know code to it to a level. 
Some people don't know so much coding. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is that DSR helps people transition from wherever they are to a career in data science. And often, wherever they are, is not a place where they are programming every day. For example, PhD people, right? They may have done a PhD. They may have done a little bit of coding for the PhD, but they are not pros. And some other people, they, are, they have a job that they don't particularly care for anymore. And maybe their background is in economics or in biology. So they're not necessarily strong coders. But today it's so easy to improve your coding skill or your machine learning skill that they they will naturally do so. And then if in the interview I realize that they are still not strong enough, I will give them resources to improve and interview them again in a month or two months' time. And when people come back and do the second interview and I see that they have learned a lot on their own, I really like that. And they they get accepted. So I like to work with hungry people, with people who want to do this very much. So the, the opposite of that is a person that says, oh, I love AI, I love machine learning. I want to make this my career. And then you ask them, okay, what have you done so far? And they say, nothing. Then I don't believe that they want this so hard, right? Yeah, you're looking for you know a base level of interest or uh, evidence that people have done something um, to help them move into the field. Yeah. Um, Jose, uh, I think a popular question for listeners, um, maybe around deep learning specifically, um, it's obviously on your curriculum and you talked about reinforcement learning as well. Um, what's your view on how much deep learning is actually being used in corporate data science teams? Um, yeah, could you speak to that? The thing with the learning is that it's working best for unstructured data. And companies tend to have tabular data or structured data, not so much unstructured data. So if you're a bank, you have tables of transactions. If you are an insurance company, you have tables of claims. If you are an e-commerce shop, you have tables of products and purchases. Because images and sound and video were not so easy to analyze with machine learning before, companies didn't put so much emphasis in keeping this data around. Also, it's kind of very invasive, right? So if you have video of your clients, before you could not even analyze it, but also it takes a lot of space, it's sensitive, you can identify people. So companies didn't use it that much. In North America and China, where privacy laws are not as strong as in Europe, they had an easier time. They probably had more data like that. And there is where deep learning really shines. So to go back to your question of where is deep learning being used, right? So it's been used in companies where they have unstructured data. They have video, they have photos, they have audio, they have text. So that's not that many companies, surprisingly. Even in the Valley, you have the big five, like... Uh, GAFA or whatever you want to call them, or FANGs, right? Um, for sure, they're they're making a killing with, with deep learning right now. But even they don't have that many people doing deep learning in production because it's costly, right? So having GPUs or TPUs crunching data for every customer you have, and you have billions if you're Google, is really taxing. So it's getting there. I think the strategy for... Uh, funk 
Google, Facebook, and so on, is to sell very easily consumable machine learning to the rest of the world. And you can see that on, for example, Google Colab. Um, so for them, they hope that all other companies that are not using it yet will use it in a prepackaged form that is easier to use that comes from them. So if machine learning is the new electricity, as uh, Andrew Eng talks about, then they are the utility companies. And this is a very good position to be in. And specifically, are we talking about things like TensorFlow and CAFE and some of the open source frameworks that those tech companies have created? Ah, right. So then that's another interesting question. So why do big companies open source their libraries, right? And I have an answer for that. I don't know if it's the right answer. So my thinking is that um, if you are a startup or if you are any any company really, you can compete on algorithms or you can compete on data. And if the algorithms become commoditized, so if somebody gives you an algorithm already that works really well, then the only way to compete is with data. And they have an advantage in data. If you're Google, you have more data than anybody else. So by giving away the algorithms, they are burning the advantage of any other company that would want to have an advantage on algorithms and not on data. Yeah, so by open sourcing um, the infrastructure that allows companies to train algorithms, they're in effect reducing the competition of other businesses starting up and trying to do that. Right. So imagine that my IP, I've been working on it for two years. I have a kick-ass algorithm. I don't have that much data, but so what? I have a kick-ass algorithm. And now... Google, who has a lot more data than me, just open sources a library where anybody could, in a couple of weeks, create an algorithm as good as mine. So my IP is worth next to nothing now. However, Google, Apple, and the big companies are acquiring uh, AI startups on a pretty much monthly mm -hmm. basis. Um, mm -hmm. Why is that still happening, do you think, Jose? Right. So um, having people who can create new algorithms is, uh, is very difficult. This is actually going in the opposite direction of what I was mentioning before, that uh, machine learning is becoming popularized or commoditized. This is different. So applications of machine learning are becoming easier and easier to build. And I have empirical proof of this because people at DSR come up with projects that are ridiculously good looking in three months. Um, but if you want a new algorithm, if you want to create something that didn't exist before from scratch, solving a problem that is novel, that only a few people in the world can do it. And those guys are usually in startups. So if you want to hire them, you have to buy their startup. And that is the strategy that probably the fans of the world are using right now to acquire talent. So the acquisitions we're seeing are for uh, companies or startups building stuff that's not been done before in machine learning and, and, and solving novel problems rather than companies that are tweaking or improving off-the-shelf models and accuracies. Yeah, that's also a very good point. Who has made a lot of money out of machine learning yet? Maybe not that many people. So you can say that Google is a machine learning company, right? So their core innovation was 
a machine learning algorithm to rank pages. So that's one. Mm. But there are not that many people who are extremely good at machine learning. And just because of that fact, they made billions. I don't think I know anybody who made billions. I mean, it's not a necessity, right? So it could be that machine learning as a technology is not there yet, right? So think about other technologies, more primitive ones, let's say, like making websites. Do you know somebody who made billions making websites? Yeah, right? So many people. Um, mobile apps. Maybe mobile apps, not billions, but many people made serious money with a mobile app, right? With machine learning uh, alone, I don't think this has happened yet. It could be that it never happens, that machine learning is just enabling features for other things, or it could be that there is an entire family of companies that we don't even know yet that can be created with machine learning as the core that are going to make some people very wealthy. Would the acquisition of DeepMind uh, by Google be an example of that, do you think, Jose? Ah, okay, good question. Um, yeah, how much was, how much did Google pay for? Five or six hundred million. Six hundred million, right? Yeah. So for sure, the founders must have made a lot of money, right? Interestingly, um, we work with quite a few candidates from DeepMind and are, are endlessly trying to pull them out and, and place them elsewhere. Um, obviously, it's a struggle given. Uh, the compensation packages that they are uh, given and also the fact that they're able to work on on greenfield research. Uh, in fact, one PhD candidate uh, I spoke to last week was uh, strongly considering joining DeepMind uh, in London and, and his rationale was really that he gets to do what he wants um, and he's able to pursue research that's really an extension of his PhD uh, rather than being pushed into productization or writing code that needs to work at scale. Um, he, he really saw it as a playground with other smart people uh, where they're able to kind of pursue um, slightly abstract dreams and, and research aims um, with the pay uh, of a big tech company. Um, so it sounds like a good environment. Yeah. So there are only two companies as far as I know that can do AGI, like artificial general intelligence, like they are aiming for that. Not doing it, but aiming for that. One is DeepMind, the other one is Open Open AI. So those are kind of the sexiest spots right now. We, I heard a rumor, uh, Jose, that Open AI um, maybe was struggling a little bit or had gone through a pretty big reorganization. Um, did you hear that? Did that cross your desk? Mm, no, no. I've heard that they got money from Microsoft recently. Um, recently, as in two months ago or something like that. So. When did you hear that? Before that? Before that yeah, time? Yeah, it was it was middle part of, of last year. Ah, so, um, okay. yeah, I presume the Microsoft funding has uh, quelled any problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Jose, uh, obviously I recruit for experienced hires in uh, Boston, New York, California. Mm -hmm. um, you're doing the same um, in an albeit different fashion, but in Berlin, uh, we spoke last week on the phone about... Um, what's reasonable to expect of candidates during interview processes. Um, hmm. Do you want to give the listeners a, a, an indication of what you're seeing from Berlin companies when they're trying to hire a data scientist? Right, right. Yeah, so the the most common format for interviews in Berlin is a take-home exercise that can take 
from hours to days, like maybe a week maximum. It, from the ones I've seen, they are normally um, not so super sophisticated. So it's mostly tabular data where you have to do some feature engineering, this kind of thing. And then there are maybe two or three interviews after that. Um, and I cannot tell you exactly that they are very different um, how they, they are, but definitely technical interviews. Um, what I don't see is the typical interview with a whiteboard and asking for, you know, algorithms and data structure questions that you need to study this cracking the code interview book before. That is a typical interview format in the Valley and probably New York, but not so in Europe, surprisingly, or well, not surprisingly, but it's just a different style, right? Also in Toronto, people don't do that interview either. It's very much about personality and um, they don't do the whiteboard questions actually. And what's your view on that, Jose? I guess in uh, Silicon Valley, it almost becomes a skill in itself being able to pass uh, a whiteboard interview. Um, do you think it's unnecessary? What are your views on it? Um, it could be that it's really helpful to do that for hiring software engineers. For data scientists, I don't think you can. If you have a data scientist that have the programming chops of a software engineer, that is an unicorn. And data science coding standards are somewhere more, some, somewhat more lax. Um, ideally, you want to, to have the person doing data science experiments also pushing code to production. But that will take time. Not that many teams are ready for that. And not that many data scientists are ready to collaborate in an environment with other engineers. So data science is a lot more tire and error, a lot more exploration and less concern with having a solution that is completely solid, that is going to stay in production and not wake you up at 3 a.m., right? That is a nice to have, for sure. People strive to, to get that, but they cannot optimize for both at the same time. Either they iterate very fast and try many things, or they write very solid code. And in the data science world, people tend to do the iteration part well and the production part not so well. In the software engineering world, it's more about, hey, let's make things solid. And that could create tension between a team of data scientists and a team of software engineers that have to collaborate to put something in production. And also this reflects on interviews, right? So a very strong uh, algorithms and data structure interview will select people that are good at optimizing code in production to make things fast. And that may not be the best skill to, to interview for if you are interviewing data scientists. Yeah, I agree. I think we are seeing a trend, um, particularly in Silicon Valley, of uh, machine learning researchers and data scientists um, being expected to code like software mm -hmm. engineers. Um, and I think... Uh, one CTO I was speaking to uh, felt that strong programming skills were a direct correlation of someone's intelligence mm. level, um, thereby people that struggle um, and don't have good engineering skills um, can be an assessment that they're perhaps not smart enough <laughs> um, to get the job. Um, seems a little bit unfair, um, but it's certainly something that we've come across. So you think, uh, yeah, uh, 
that, that people are, interviewers are asking more and more questions about software engineering in data science interviews. Absolutely. And, and I think we're seeing, um, you know, a gap in, in the market perhaps of, of the skill um, that allows people to productionize data science and, and, and productionize machine learning models. Um, is there a gap there um, between data science and experiments and then actually making stuff work at scale? Um, you know, may we see a move towards data science engineering job titles mm -hmm. and, and people specifically um, that are software engineers mm -hmm. essentially building uh, data science um, into, into production? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we spend maybe 10% of our curriculum on production. Um, it's harder to train people on production issues because you have to basically replicate a production environment just to create one exercise, and that's very costly. Um, maybe what we need to see is a clearer understanding of companies of what they need because maybe they need data engineers, but they are hiring data scientists, right? And that's not the same thing, right? And they don't know sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And if we are asked for uh, by a client for a data scientist who can, uh, you know, build and design models, um, but also needs to write production Python and C++ code, um, we get a little bit confused and would and probably highlight that's two quite different skills. Um, however, some clients would like to search for that, um, you know, first to see if they can find mm. it, which is tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting thing that um, there is so much energy around data science, right? So many people are passionate about it. So many people are doing online courses and learning the basics and applying for jobs that then employers see that. So they post a job for data science and they get, I don't know, far more applications than they expected. And then they tune down their, probably their, their expectations, their, their salary offerings, right? Because they say, oh, if I need a data scientist, I can get one. Little do they know that the the sea of applications that they're getting are people who are barely competent enough to understand the basics. But hey, nobody says that you are not a data scientist. If you can change your LinkedIn profile name and you can say you are a data scientist, nobody can say they are not. It's kind of tricky. And this is even more problematic when the company hiring doesn't have anybody on board who can do interviews for the scientists, right? So then they revert to credentialism and then they have this cover your ass attitude of, well, I'm not going to get fired by hiring a PhD uh, on this particular topic. If the PhD doesn't perform, then I can always claim, well, but I hired a PhD from a good school. So uh, when companies already have a team of data scientists and the people hiring are data scientists. They care less about credentials and more about actual working, functioning code and what you have done when nobody told you what to do, basically. Yeah, absolutely. We completely agree with that. And um, I think companies embarking on their first time data science hire or, or number one in the team um, is a completely different um, problem to companies with an existing large data science team that are able to evaluate candidates properly. Um, quite often when companies are hiring data science, number one, uh, it's quite difficult um, for the candidates to be assessed accurately and also the companies to really know how to evaluate someone properly. Yeah, evaluation is super hard. It's super hard everywhere for every discipline in, in technology. 
but I think in data science is particularly difficult because you, you need such a variety of skills. People need to be competent in basically writing working software, but also in understanding business problems, in communicating the value of what they are doing, um, in collecting and cleaning data, which is not particularly uh, a difficult task in software engineering, but it, there is a collection of tricks that you need to know. It's just like trick of a trade. Uh, any of these things can can make you look bad on an interview if you just happen to not know um, the trick that the interviewer is asking for. So, for example, command line, um, it's there are some questions that are totally easy to solve with proper Unix command line knowledge, bash. And if you don't do it like that, then you look like a fool if you start writing code with a loop to iterate over lines on a file. Um, so that's something that lands on the on the lap of data scientists for interview preparation. It may not invalidate you as a software engineer if you don't know Bash that well. Um, if you don't know business that well, you can be also uh, failing an interview. You can be completely oblivious to business value and be a fantastic software engineer. That's not a problem. But for data scientists, you have all those things. You have to have skill sets that come from disciplines as varied as DevOps, um, business development, um, design, and for sure, software engineering. Just um, in summary of, of that point, Jose, could you uh, give listeners um, an understanding of what you see as the key ingredients of a modern-day data scientist? And the key ingredient? Oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe creativity, really. So everything else you can learn. Even domain knowledge, which is very important to come up with good questions, that you can acquire with time. But creativity, there is something to be said about people who can do well what, what, what they are told to do. Maybe what I really like to work with, who I really like to work with, are those guys who you don't have to tell them what to do. They, they come up with the question that, that, that you need to, to answer. And often... This question is not something that the business side can generate themselves because they don't know what, what is possible. So you need to have the, the mental flexibility of thinking like the business side and thinking like the technologist that you are to find the intersection of problems and solutions. So there are problems that are solvable with existing technology and only you know which problems are those because Everybody else doesn't know what is possible, what are the possible solutions. So why did a team here create a self-driving toy car that picks up cigarette butts, right? That sounds totally sci-fi, right? Even if you are the CEO of a cleaning company and you may make millions if you come up with that idea, you probably don't come up with that idea because you don't think it's possible. That's simple. Um, I think everyone would be interested to know, Jose, um, is the toy car cigarette but picking up robot um, going to be pursued by, by the team? Do you think it'll be something that they continue to work on? No, no, not at all. We don't have the capability to pursue things like this. And they also disbanded, basically. So they are in different continents even now working. So, Well, we could definitely do with a few on the streets of Manchester, uh, <laughs> for sure. Um, Jose, um, just another question um, linked on to your last one. Um, what advice would you give 
people embarking on a data science career, um, aside from obviously enrolling uh, in the DSR, um, could you give any general advice for people that are starting out in this field? So there is so much good material for free right now that it's tragic that we don't use it better. So online courses are pretty great. Some of them are better than others. For example, I do recommend fast.ai courses. They're very practical, very applied. Books and tutorials online, there are so many of them. And they are either free or cheap. Like books are not very expensive either. And then there is one website that I really like called Papers with Code. So as the name says, this is just a collection of papers with uh, implementations. So if you see something in the news, oh, now we can do this, Some, something really flashy and impressive about machine learning, you can go to papersweetcode.com and it could be that the implementation of that paper is there and you can start iterating on that and building products or just toy little explorations with that technology yourself. So this is the beauty of being alive in 2020, that you have the power of so many people doing things for you and writing it as open source implementations that it's literally embarrassing. Anybody in their kitchen table, in their underpants, could be right now writing code that does things that will be totally sci-fi only five years ago. So if you tell programmers from five, 10 years ago that you can build the things that we build today, they will tell you you're full of bullshit. Do you think um, in the next five to 10 years we'll be even more astounded, Jose, by what people can do in, in machine learning and data science? That's very difficult to predict. Um, it could be that we are reaching a plateau in computer vision. NLP is really... Um, exploding right now. So it could be that NLP looks super spectacular five years from now, but these things are very hard to predict. Um, There were fields, so before deep learning, machine learning as a field was not moving that fast. So from one year to another, the improvements in some competitions in conferences was like the decimal points, the range, right? Now we are getting used to spectacular new things every year at NIRIPS. It may end at some point or it may continue. Nobody knows. Would you uh, advise people, uh, Jose, to pick a specialism? Um, You touched on NLP there and and spoke about computer vision. Certainly we do a a bunch of hiring for those two uh, disciplines in the States. Yeah, would you advise people to specialize and focus on an application of machine learning? On applications of machine learning, sure, for sure. So the alternative is what theoretical machine learning, that's not very useful. So applications, for sure. Now, which applications? That's a little bit harder to say. So if you believe that companies are going to move and do a lot more computer vision and NLP and even reinforcement learning, then for sure you should try to specialize on that. If you want to pass a job interview today in Europe, you may want to spend more time with tabular data, which is what most companies use. And it could be that most of the value is still in tabular data and that all these images and videos and sounds are fringe cases and there is not so much value in them. 
that could be. But it could also be that we just missed the point completely and those unstructured, unstructured data sets are fantastic and this, this is where most of the value is. And we still haven't explored it enough. Okay, that makes sense. Um, I think from our perspective, um, we tend to see candidates coming out of uh, their degrees and whether it be master's or PhD uh, level, they tend to have focused obviously on their thesis um, in an area such as vision, speech, natural language, but all of those problems are underpinned by very strong fundamental machine learning uh, knowledge and, and, and use of uh, deep learning models, as, as you said. Um, so maybe people needn't worry about specializing too soon, but nail down the strong fundamental machine learning skills and then um, you know, worry about the application or the problem they're solving further down the line. Well, it has some advantages, right? So if you specialized, I have two friends who are also teachers at DSR who specialize on music information retrieval. And that is pretty niche, right? So one of them actually implemented the first music recommender at SoundCloud. So that's pretty niche, but hey, if you are the best in the world at what you do, and there are like only a dozen companies doing this in the world, but they're all your clients, then so what? So don't be afraid to specialize. Uh, you're the best. <laughs> no, no. Well, certainly yeah. Spotify, <laughs> I think, have one of the biggest European machine learning and, and data science teams. Uh, so yeah, agreed. Exactly. Um, yeah. Jose, anything else you wanted to bring up or, or talk about um, before we wrap things up? Um, it might be good for you to just summarize uh, hmm. very briefly the DSR again. Quick summary is that if you're a company and you're listening to this, understand that you don't need to be Google to take advantage of machine learning. You can start with very little. You can start with pre-trained models and open source libraries and go very far. I see this every day in the projects that people build at DSR. And if you are considering switching careers into machine learning, then by all means, try us out. Check out our website, datasciencestreet.com, and apply an interview with me. Now it's a better time than ever because you can do it without any uh, upfront payment. And the prospects, the prospects of getting a job in data science are pretty strong, at least in Europe right now. So um, the, the next um, batch is starting April 30th, so it's uh, a good time to apply about now, about a month and a week uh, before it. The interview, well, it's, uh, it's tough, like only 10% of so uh, people pass, but you can always do a second interview if you don't pass the first time. And that's pretty much it. And in general, just think that there is so much low-hanging fruit in machine learning that we should be embarrassed that not more of us, not more humans are doing machine learning. So it's really tragic that we humans have not figured out how to do this at a scale. Um, we, we, we are, what, 8 billion people on the planet and only maybe 800,000 of us are doing machine learning and this is totally a random number but probably a very small percentage um that is tragic we should be all using machine learning and we should teach machine learning to people 
in high school, basically. Why, Jose? What about people that don't really care about machine learning? Can you explain why it's tragic that not more of us are doing it? Right. Well, because it's a technology that um, it's very easy to transmit, and it's also multi, multi-topic. multi I don't know. That's not a good word. But, um, okay, let's go back to technological revolutions in history. You had... Mm, ships that allowed you to go to a different continent, right? That was a big innovation. You had the steam engine that allowed you to move heavy loads from one point to another, right? But look at what it took to deploy those technologies. You had to build a ship or build the tracks and the trains to go around in an entire country. And then after that huge investment, you will have one thing that you can do that you couldn't do before, which is moving big loads across sea or across land. That was super important. It allowed commerce, it allowed civilization to to go further. But it's one thing that you can do. Okay, with machine learning, the way to spread it is as simple as copying a file, right? This is electronic. It's, it's There is nothing physical. So that means that if somebody in China invents something and makes it open source, the next day, everybody else in the world can use it. And the applications are not single topic. So you can apply it for health, you can apply it for finance, you can apply it for e-commerce, you can apply it for whatever thing you want to apply it for, right? And many of the applications, we haven't thought of them yet. So it's just a lack of imagination, not so much a lack of resources that is uh, the bottleneck right now. If we can inspire people to think creatively about what you can do with this technology, um, that should should give you a lot more leverage. So what I'm saying is that every technology gives you power, and I suspect that machine learning as a technology has the potential to give you the most leverage. Yes, because it has these two features, that is electronic, so you can just copy-paste it, basically. And second, it's uh, not specific to one single task. So you can solve multiple problems with the same algorithm, even. So this is why I think it's tragic that not more people are doing machine learning or that we don't teach it to everybody we know. Fantastic. Thank you, Jose. Um, Full details of how to enroll in the data science retreat uh, will be provided with this podcast. Um, and any questions for Jose or I, feel free to get in touch. Um, thank you for coming on, Jose. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Keith, for inviting me. This was great. I had a lot of fun. Me too. Um, we'll speak soon, Jose. Thank you.